0: All right. Well, good morning. How you guys doing? Doing all right? Enjoying it? Very cool. I like it. Uh, My name is Marco. I am the preaching and teaching pastor here at Storehouse Community Church. Uh, If you're new, welcome. Uh, If you're visiting, hi. And uh, if you are regular, nice to see you guys again. We're going to find ourselves in Habakkuk chapter 2 verses 2 through 5. So we're only looking at three verses today. Over the past couple of weeks, we've been looking at a lot, uh, but rest assured there's still a lot in these three verses. Uh, so as you open or load your Bibles uh, on your phone, uh, let me kind of bring you up to speed on, on where we're at in Habakkuk, where we've kind of left off, and then ultimately where we're headed today. And so, we started this series now about four weeks ago, and Habakkuk is a prophet, a a man who's been called by God, and uh, his story, uh, from what we see in Scripture, is one of uh, that's behind the scenes. We are getting to see him interact with God. Um, in light of what God is doing. In other words, every time we see prophets in the Old Testament come on uh, on screen, uh, what we see is that, one, they were uniquely called by God, and two, they are sent out to go preach repentance. But what we never really get is this behind-the-scenes look at what the conversation looks like with God and his prophets when things aren't necessarily going well or when things are simply in disarray. And I think one of the things that I've loved so much about Habakkuk and what I appreciate so much about Habakkuk is that we get that behind-the-scenes view. We get the, the fact that, man, we know he's been called by God. We know that he's preached repentance at some point or will preach repentance at some point. But we've never gotten to see or we've never had the opportunity to see what does it look like to wrestle with the truths of God with God or before God. And I think that's what I've appreciated most about Habakkuk. And so that's kind of his background and so when we covered the first part of chapter 1 chapter 1 opens up with Habakkuk pretty much crying out how long oh lord and the reason he's crying out how long is because what's happening before Habakkuk's eyes is the unraveling of God's people there is corruption there is rebellion people are rejecting God and all of this is being done by the people of God and so Habakkuk is crying out he's almost lamenting and he's crying out to God asking how long How long are you going to wait until you do something? Which tends to be uh, the cry of many of our hearts. Habakkuk seems to be very timely, uh, even in our generation. God later responds to Habakkuk. And I mean that very deliberately because he doesn't necessarily answer Habakkuk. He responds to him. And he responds to him by saying, uh, man, you wouldn't know what I'm doing if I told you, number one. Number two, I am raising up the Chaldeans or the Babylonians to actually uh, discipline my, God, my, my people. In other words, I am removing my hand of protection so that the Chaldeans would ultimately overrun you. That wasn't exactly what he was expecting. And last week we looked at Habakkuk uh, in a way where he goes before God one more time and almost challenges God, right? Are you not from everlasting? Are you not holy, my Lord, my God? And uh, and he goes on to list several of God's attributes and several of God's characteristics, but he's listing them both in uh, confusion and perplexity. And finally, at the end of his complaint or at the end of his prayer last week, what we see is a turning point in Habakkuk. We see him come to this place where he says, okay, I need to be still. I need to be quiet. I'm constantly looking at the issue that is before me. And so I am issue-driven and not cross-driven. And so what he does is he goes up to his watchtower. He goes up to his watchtower and he waits for the Lord. He stands firm in what he knows about God And he watches for the oncoming invasion. That was part of his job. Not only was this dude a prophet, this dude was also what's called a watchman. These guys went up to the towers and their job at the top of the tower, their job was to communicate to the people impending invasion. In addition to that, their job was also to communicate when there was a messenger And so Habakkuk goes up and ultimately entrusts God with his problem, with his perplexity, with his confusion, and he entrusts God with it. And he goes up to the tower and he waits for the Lord. And he is persistent in his waiting and he is expecting an answer from the Lord. And he does his job at the same time, even in the midst of murky, muddy waters. He does his job either way. And so we find ourselves in verses 2 through 5 today, where we're going to see God's response to Habakkuk. And it's a pretty cool one, I think. So here's what I'll do. I'll read verses 2 through 5, and then, uh, and then we'll jump in. We're, we're going to park in two sections, and then those sections have subsections, and then those have... Subs- no, but you know, there's... There's a lot of meat in this. But nevertheless, we're going to park in verses 2 and 3, and then finally 4 and 5. Uh, but let me read through the whole thing, and then I'll pray. So this is what happens. What we know is that some time has passed by, and then God answers Habakkuk. And so starting in verse 2, And the Lord answered me, Write the vision, make it plain on tablets, so he may run who reads it. Now, if you underline, if you highlight all of that, I want you to underline, highlight, circle that so he may run who reads it. Verse 3, For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. Verse 4, Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him. But the righteous shall live by his faith. That is the crux of this book. Finally, verse 5, Moreover, wine is a traitor, an arrogant man who never, who is never at rest. His greed is as wide as shoal like death. He has never enough. He gathers for himself all nations and collects as his own all peoples. Join me in prayer, and then we'll jump into verses 2 and 3. Heavenly Father, as we come before you uh, in worship through your preached word, Lord, uh, I pray that I would be set aside, and that you would be made much of, and that it would be your Holy Spirit at work and speaking. Lord, I pray that through this, uh, man, we would just be, uh, that we would examine the condition of our hearts, that we would not be an issue-driven people, but that we would be a cross-driven people, and that uh, through Habakkuk, we would be uh, constantly reminded of this truth so that we could look at to who you are, what you're doing, and ultimately what you've done. So we ask that you would be with us this morning. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. All right, here we go. There's a lot of—man, I hope you're taking notes, because we're going to get nerdy today. I love it when I get to be nerdy, okay? So I'm the only one. Okay, here we go. Thank you, Emma. Here we go. Uh, so verses two and three, right? He says, "Write the vision, make it plain on tablets, so he may run who reads it." I told you to underline that, right? So he may run who reads it. Uh, for the vision awaits a appointed time, it will not delay. He, here's what God is telling Habakkuk in his answer. He 's actually kind of giving him a twofold answer. He's telling him, i'm going to give you a vision, and you need to be kingdom-minded, not culturally minded." Okay, that's the first thing that he tells Habakkuk. You need to be kingdom minded. You need to set your mind on the kingdom. You cannot set your mind on the culture. And in verses four and five, we'll go into that a little bit more. But for now, the admonition to Habakkuk is that you need to be kingdom minded. Now there's significance with the tablets and there's significance with that section uh, that reads, so he may run who reads it. Because at the end of the day, Habakkuk is still a prophet. Not only is his job to warn the people of impending invasion, but his job is also to communicate what God has told him to communicate. And so when God says, write the vision and put it down on tablets, that's significant. The fact that they're plural, it's significant. Because on one end, what Habakkuk is going to do is ultimately make them publicly available. It's a public notification that invasion is coming. It's a public notification that God has raised the Chaldeans and he is going to discipline his people. Tablets were used as a form, and I'm not talking about iPads, but tablets were used as a form of public display so that all can see and all can be updated on what was going on. So part of the reason he is writing on tablets is for public notification. There is invasion coming. God is disciplining his people by using the Chaldeans and raising them up. This is what is happening. Because at the end of the day, again, his job is to still communicate what is going on to the people. The second part as to why the tablets are so significant in light of that section so that he may run who reads it is because one or one use of the tablets is so that it would be public notification the other one is so that it would be public proclamation in other words what god is not saying is don't run away from the message in fact i need you to run with the message and proclaim it you feel me on that and habakkuk is tasked with this not just for that generation but generations to come when we're looking at prophecy and when we're looking at god communicating things in this case to habakkuk we're not only looking at the here and now which is the invasion that's coming but we're also looking at who is to come there's there's a two-fold part to that and the twofold part is man i'm not only communicating what's about to happen but i'm also communicating who is to come That is why it is so imperative that Habakkuk takes one of the tablets or takes some of the tablets and publicly proclaims it and that it doesn't just stay with the current generation, but that it keeps on going. And if you're like, the public proclamation, what is that? That God will come, that a Savior is coming, that sins will be dealt with. That's ultimately the public proclamation. Proclamation. You see, and in Habakkuk's time, this is what they're waiting for. They're waiting for the Savior. And I'll get to that in just a bit. The second part says, For still the vision has awaited its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It surely will come. So there's this public proclamation that he is to carry out about who is to come. Not just what will happen, but who is to come. And within that same message, He is saying it is coming and it will come in God's time, not your time. It will come in His time and in in and through His work. It hastens to the end. That means it's coming quickly. It is coming quickly. He doesn't lie about it. It's coming quickly and He doesn't lie about it. If it seems slow, wait for it. He admonishes Habakkuk by saying, if you think he's delaying, he's not. Just because so much time has gone on doesn't mean he's delayed. It is happening in his time. It is his appointed time. And granted, the Savior will come. And he adds, it will surely come. It will not delay, right? Here's where we get to be a little nerdy. The Greek translation of the Hebrew text, that didn't confuse you, The Greek translation of the Hebrew text, uh, there's many ways of saying it. Um, One of the ways, it's a Latin word, Septuagint. What it translates, it will surely come, it will not delay. It translates that section as he will surely come, he will not delay. Again, it is looking toward not just what will happen, but who is coming. The cross-reference to that section is Hebrews 10 and Genesis 3, if you want to nerd out a little bit. We'll talk about Hebrews 10 in a second. And I want to stress that because particularly in Habakkuk's day, he's talking about the near judgment and the coming of a Savior. The Savior who is to offer himself as atoning sacrifice for sinners. And that is already fulfilled. What you and I wait for is the return of that Savior who restores and makes all things new. And we wait by faith. We wait by faith for that day. And so, like Habakkuk, our job is to continually, publicly proclaim the message of a king who will return, who has paid and pardoned sinners. And so as we transition to the next section, this is where we're really going to park our time. He goes on and says, Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. Wine is a traitor. An arrogant man is never at rest. His greed is as wide as shoal. He never has enough like death. He gathers for himself all nations. He, here's, we're going we're to park on verse 4 for the majority of our time. But what I want to talk about regarding the beginning of verse 4 and all of verse 5 is the fact that he is now addressing um, a generation that isn't uh, foreign to us. He addresses the proud person, right? He, he goes on to say, behold, his soul is puffed up. What he's saying is that the position of pride and self-reliance excludes the proud person. From the possibility of finding righteousness outside of themselves. In other words, what he is addressing is, or better yet, what we can take from this is, as we look at who he's describing the proud, the arrogant, the rebellious, the drunk you and I are not so different from that generation, yet we constantly say that we're different because we have iPads and not necessarily tablets. But this isn't new. This isn't new. This type of generation isn't new. And so that's why Habakkuk, or excuse me, that's why God is telling Habakkuk to have a kingdom mindset, not a cultural one. When you set your mind on the kingdom, you are given and filled with hope. Yet when you set and look out to the culture, you are filled with grief. You are filled with grief. And just because things are the way they are doesn't mean that that's how they're supposed to be. Because of the condition of the heart, our experience isn't different from Habakkuk's. And what he is saying in this section is that the only way out, the only way out of that, is through faith. That's it. The only way out is through faith. <clears throat> and he writes, the righteous shall live by his faith. This is quoted three times in the New Testament, and it has spiritual significance. Excuse me, spiritual significance. And so that's where we're going to find ourselves. That's where we'll, where we'll park the majority of our time today. And so we're going to break up that, that piece, the righteous shall live by his faith. We're going to break it up into three sections. The righteous, that's one, shall live, that's two, By his faith. That is three. So let's look at the first one. When we're talking about the righteous, we're ultimately looking or asking the question, how does one become righteous? And ultimately, what is righteousness? And so what we're going to do in an effort to answer these questions is we're going to look at the sections of the New Testament that quote Habakkuk. The first one for this question is Romans chapter 1, verse 17. Paul writes... For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Here's what Paul is talking about. Or better yet, yeah, me, let me backpedal a little bit. Going back to Habakkuk, one of the things that we've been talking about is that we want to be less of, a, of an issue-driven people and more of a cross-driven people, which means that our circumstances aren't necessarily going to change, but what we hope to change is the condition of our hearts. And so in light of that, that plays a big role in how we view God and how we view ourselves before God. And so when we're answering the question, well, then how does one become righteous? What is righteousness? What Paul is ultimately talking about in Romans 1 is what does it mean to be in legal standing before God? The simplest terms, what does it mean to be accepted by God? That's what he is asking. Or that's the question we're looking to answer. And so the Bible teaches that we are made righteous not by our works, but because of the works or because, yeah, because of the works of Jesus Christ. Righteousness or justification is a gift to the sinner through the work and life of Jesus the doctrine we talked about this uh, during our five solas series if you want to learn more about this you can go there but the, the doctrine of justification teaches that we are accepted by god on the condition of faith alone our acceptance from god is not based on our works or merit say that one more time right because because here it is in the daily life maybe this is just me in our daily life we quickly go to a theology of works and i'll tell you about that in just a bit so the doctrine of justification teaches that we are accepted by god on the condition of faith alone our acceptance from god is not based on our works or merit So upon receiving God in faith, a faith, a gift that He has given us, what do we get? Forgiveness. We receive forgiveness. That means that when God the Father looks at you and me, He sees Jesus in and through you. That is the fundamental foundation of being righteous and being made justified before God. It was nothing that you did. It was everything that he finished. You are made righteous, not by your works, but by someone else's. So our legal standing, so when we're going back to this, the righteous, uh, the righteous how does one become righteous? Man, one becomes righteous by faith alone. And what does that mean? It means that we are accepted by God, not on the condition of what we've done, but on the basis of what Jesus has already finished. That's what it means to be given righteousness. And so, in that, we can't necessarily boast in that. We push and pull. Excuse me. We push and point everything to Jesus, which leads us into the second part. The second part is uh, shall live. Another word. Or another in, in different way of saying it is how we are made alive in Christ. Now, in one sense, we have legal standing before God. That is, that we are accepted by God through faith because of his work. And now we're going to see how faith works in us in light of our everyday lives. So this is Galatians chapter three, verses ten through eleven. Paul writes, For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written. Cursed be the one, or excuse me, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. Here's the context of what Paul is teaching. Paul is addressing the Galatians, but he is addressing people. He's addressing those who believe that their performance gives them a standing before God who believe their performance gives them a standing before God. He is saying his argument here is that through faith in Jesus we are made alive. Our salvation is not one of achieving, but one of receiving. What the Galatians are doing here is that, man, they believe the gospel that Paul preached to them and then at some point turned it around and began to say, well... What we do is what gets us into the grace of God. What we do is what earns us favor with Him. You are accepted, the Christian is accepted by the work of Jesus Christ. We have the forgiveness of sins by His blood. And so what Paul is saying here, what he is urging them is saying is, what you do is a result of who you are, not the other way around. That's where they're coming from. Now, going back a little bit to the practical and to the daily life, how many of you, when you have, you don't have to show me your hands, right? This might be slightly rhetorical. How many of you, when you have, man, sinned against somebody, whether it's your spouse or your friend, or, man, you you, uh, you just, you did something you shouldn't have, whatever that looks like. And one of the things that you do is you tend to make it up man, I'm going to wash the laundry. I'm going to cook. I'm going to have things ready to go. I'm going to do X, Y, and Z so that I get back into their graces, right? Or so that I get back onto their good side, right? See, a couple of people smiling, so you do it. Great, all right? Now, apply that same principle to your relationship with God, Man, when you've sinned against the Almighty and you know you've dropped the ball, how many of you think, man, I'm just going to read more, I'm just going to do this, I'm going to go to a community group, I'm going to go to five community groups, I'm going to go to church, I'm going to do all of these things so that I work my way back into the grace of Jesus, so that I work myself back into His acceptance. When we do that, we misconstrue the doctrine of justification, We are accepted not based on our works, but the works of Jesus. There's there's nothing else to do. He's already paid for it unless we crucify him a second time. There is nothing left to do except to repent. And when we repent, we find ourselves coming before a holy God and seeing how wonderful and holy he is, and how much of need we are for him. So when we're talking about being made alive in Christ, it's, uh, it's when you drop the ball, you don't have to make up for it. You just have to repent and turn away from your sin. Martin Luther says this, he's uh, writing about... Um, I guess justification, he says, the hypocritical doers of the law are those who seek to obtain a righteousness by a mechanical performance of good works while their hearts are far removed from God. In other words, what he's saying is people will do things for God. People will try to make things up, uh, not make things up, but uh, yeah, make up for, for their lack of, oh, I don't know, where they feel distant from God, but their heart is far removed from him. That's you and I when we engage in this theology of works. Our hearts are far removed because when things don't work or things don't go according to plan, what's the first thing that we do? But I've done X, Y, and Z. How did you not see A, B, and C? And all that does is prove what Martin Luther is talking about, that our hearts are far from God when we adopt that kind of self-righteousness. And he goes on to say, they act like the foolish carpenter who starts with the roof when he builds a house. Last one. Last one is by his faith. Now, I love this because of the word his. By his faith, we are to endure. So one tells us who we are, one tells us how we operate. So one gives us our identity. One gives us our activity. One is telling us how to sustain it. Right? Feel me with that? Here he's addressing how we sustain it. So let's look at, uh, this is Hebrews 10, 36 to 39. And the writer says, For you have need of endurance. I love that he starts off with that way. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. But righteous, but the righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and persevere their souls. Christian, we endure. Another word for endurance is steadfastness. We grow in steadfastness. We endure not by asking God to change our circumstances, but by asking Him to change us. I'll say it one more time. We endure, grow mature in steadfastness not by asking God to change our circumstance, but by asking Him to change us. Our hope, is not found in what is before us, but in who is to come. But in who is to come. Our identity, our activity, and how those are sustained must come from the same source. The source is Jesus. They all must come from the same source. Activity, identity, and how they're sustained come from the same source. And so as we close up, here's, here's what I want you to be encouraged by. <sighs> Habakkuk in this time is crying out to God how long things are going astray. Now, as we've talked about all of that for the past couple of weeks, whether it's been in community groups or getting to see your heads nod, we uh, can relate to those kinds of seasons and scenarios. God, what is it that you're doing? When is it that you're coming back? Why is this going on? How come you're letting this happen? I'm the good person. That's the bad person. When are you actually going to do something? What he is telling Habakkuk is the same thing that he tells us. He says, I'm telling you to wait by faith. He is coming. He is returning. He is telling you to wait by faith. So for now, for now as we have a reminder of our identity as we are reminded of our activity and we are reminded that in order to sustain that we must endure what we are reminded as for now we wait for the day where our faith becomes sight we wait for God's kingdom to come and for his will to be done what we wait for Excuse me, we wait for the day where fools are no longer winning and worshipers are no longer weeping. Rest assured, Christian, if you are, excuse me, rest assured that you are a citizen of the kingdom and merely a resident to this earth and Jesus is coming back to reclaim his bride, we wait by faith until that day comes. Join me in prayer, Lord. As uh, as we close up, or as we finish this 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 uh, finish our time. Lord, we've been talking a lot about faith, we've been talking a lot about waiting, and I can't help but notice, and I'm sure my brothers and sisters feel the same way, that it seems like not only is that the theme of our lives right now, but it is also uh, two things that go hand in hand. And so as, we've, if, uh, as, we, as we have listened to your preached word, my, my hope, my prayer is that our faith would be made strong, not because uh, we don't understand what you're doing, but because we are grounded in what you've done. And that is that you have sent your son to die on the cross for sinners and He is now resurrected. He is alive and well. He is seated in his throne and one day will return. And so would you lead us and would you convict us and would you compel us to have a kingdom mindset and not a cultural one? Because we can very easily look out at the culture. We can very easily look out to what is going on in front of us and before us and completely lose sight of you and who we are and what we're to do and how we are to be sustained throughout all of this. Yet the promises of your word remind us that we belong to you through the efforts of another. And because of who Jesus says we are, it affects what we do. And because of what he has done and the fact that he is coming back, it is that which sustains us. And so, God, as we go into this time of tithes and offerings, Lord, this is this is a moment where I would beg you to please continue to be at work in the lives and hearts of my brothers and sisters. That they wouldn't be defined by, man, what they have before their hands. In fact, that they would actually open their hands. That they would open their hands and see you at work in them. So that they would worship you. So that they would realize and come to see that Jesus is their greatest need. And that it would start here and that it would bleed out into the rest of the week. And so, Lord, we thank you for this time. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.